first step is you always have to know what is on the other side of the table, what drives them, what are the incentives. A bad bitch takes charge of her body, her boundaries, and her bank account. Today's episode is brought to you by FTX US, the most complete crypto and finance app to buy and sell crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. You can trade NFTs with no fees, track your entire portfolio, and use a crypto-friendly debit card at millions of retailers. Plus, they're even launching stocks. Download the FTX US app by going to the link in the description and using the code BADBITCHES to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, link in the description. Use code BADBITCHES to sign up so we can start investing and break the crypto boys club. All right, back to today's episode. Welcome back, bad bitches. Today I am here with a friend, an advisor, and amazing all-around bad bitch. I'm here with Carrie Lee Miller. She's a partner at Overton Venture Capital, investing in ambitious entrepreneurs who are changing the way we discover, purchase, and consume goods and services. She's also the founder of Meta Collective, the first campus in the metaverse, and she's an active advisor helping companies with their strategy entering the metaverse. And to top it all off, she's the founder of Spark, a health tech company, and does so much more, which we'll talk about today. Carrie, welcome to the Bad Bitch Empire. Thank you for hosting me. Thrilled to be here. So you have clearly found a way to merge so many of your different passions. You're doing multiple things at the same time and excelling at them. So tell us a bit about your background, your drive, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I was a competitive runner growing up, and I always, I've always had a lot of energy. So I think you'll see that today in a lot of the projects that I'm involved with. People say, how do you do it? And I think I was, from the get-go, born with a lot of energy. So that, I'd say, is like very important to know about me wholeheartedly. Uh, so I was all, somebody, as a child, I was always good at numbers. I was analytical. I'd say English uh, was always a challenge for me. If you looked at kind of my scores testing growing up, I was so weighted heavily on strength and math and then you know, communication challenges. So kind of the starting point for me was I was a numbers person. Um, I went to undergrad at Emory University. I was a finance major. um, And I started my career in Wall Street in 2001. I started my career right before 9-11. I was in New York City uh, watching it from my first job at a management consulting firm. Um, And I started my career um, in management consulting I worked with various clients uh, that were, they were well-known names and brands, Enron and Tyco and New York Stock Exchange. And these were companies after 2001 who went through a lot of turmoil, mainly because of bad incentives um, on the leadership team and then also around executive compensation. And through having these as my first projects, I really kind of, I started thinking through these companies that were starting to go under or went under, um, I believed um, it was because of 
bad incentives. There were bad incentives of their leaders and their employees to potentially game the system and make bad decisions. Can you and, give some examples of some of the things that you spotted? Yeah, it was like it was kind of public. There was kind of not to get real geeky and technical, but I was doing things, pricing stock option valuations, uh, doing binomial and black shoals, which essentially publicly traded companies and privately traded will grant incentives for employees to, you know, have incentives around a getting shares of the company and also various metrics that will drive their behaviors and incentivize them. What happened in 2001 was a lot of the pay structures that were put in place created bad practices for these um, these companies. Mm. And as I started looking at it, I started, I've always been somebody who's been interested in the, the markets. I've actually been trading since high school. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was uh, invested in the public markets and I always enjoyed um, when, it, when, when there was a channel um, early as a child that he used to watch on TV that literally had the tickers across the screen. So every time he would visit, I would sit with Papa watching the markets and watching the stocks across the screen. And I all, was always fascinated with the stock market. Mm-hmm. And m- being an analytical and uh, data person in these, this kind of this start of my career, seeing these correlators between what I believed was the incentives of these employees at these companies, could there be a correlation in stock price between the incentives? And by the way, this is publicly available information for publicly traded companies in what's called a proxy. And something that when I started my career as an analyst, I was doing a lot of proxy analysis and looking at the plans, the incentive plans that employers were offering to their employees. Mm. And a light bulb went off and I thought to myself, is there a correlation between the stock price and the incentive design plans that these companies, these publicly traded companies have. And so what did you discover? Yeah, so I decided to go back to business school. Actually, I went to Columbia to pursue my MBA. Um, and I focused on organizational psychology and behavior. Mm. And I was on a mission to prove this out. And while I was there, as I started taking additional classes in organizational psychology and design, I realized there were so many other factors that could have an effect on um, the things that I viewed on the employee side that could impact a company. You know, the culture, you know, how are we onboarding? How are we bringing in the right talent? Recruiting, how are we recruiting the right talent? Attrition, and really all of these factors around the employees could actually dictate the success of these publicly traded companies. Mm. So that was kind of my, I'd say, pivot really from finance to really thinking through the technical aspects of HR. Mm. You know, HR, human resources, for this person who has a math background, I had never thought that HR would be a path for me. But after seeing all these like interesting inputs around, you know, the, the things that really define a company, yes, you need to have a product or service that sells. Um, however, you really need to be able to have and build the right team and the company and the culture to be able to support whatever your vision exactly. is. I mean, we all realize once you become a leader, it's the business of people, right? Everything at the end of the day comes down to if you're not doing it right, 
people problems, right? More money, more problems, more people. And so having that very strong foundation of culture and thinking through some of the things you mentioned are so important. And that's exactly it. So how then have you applied some of those learnings into the businesses that you've built or the career that you've built now? Yeah, so kind of fast forward, um, I joined Goldman Sachs in 2008. Again, perfect timing. And I think one of the messages that I want your listeners to take away from it is, you know, as we are potentially heading into a recession, you know, careers are made in the recession and there's so many opportunities. So don't forget about that. And whereas I started my career in 2001, I then joined Goldman in early 2008 to lead recruiting strategy. Mm. Goldman hired me based on the fact that I had this finance background and my obsession with looking at the data and Mm. HR. And I was hired into a role to say, hey, you know, in traditional banking, analysts and associates enter Wall Street and they stay for a year, half a year, a year, and then they leave. And Goldman, like so many banks in 2008, were focused on, we spent all this money recruiting the top talent. And then they just leave. And then they just leave. So (laughs) how can we look at the data to make more informed decision on the pools that we're recruiting from, Mm -hmm. the the metrics around, you know, what are the, the profiles of those that stay? And I joined Goldman early 2008, and we know what happened in 2008. Mm. Again, (laughs) another market crash. And I moved into several different roles at Goldman. So the blessing for me at Goldman was in 2009, the head of HR at the time, Edie Hunt, said, congratulations. We just laid off 30% of our headcount. We're keeping you, and you're now going to work with Don Duet. Don Duet was the CTO for technology infrastructure at Goldman Sachs. That was the first time that I worked with technologists. And now I'm in a strategy position thinking through innovation strategy at Goldman as Goldman is starting to evolve into a technology company. Mm. So many of the investment banks realize that, you know, fintech and the offerings of their platform are really important. Um, And it was a time in 2009 after kind of the 2008 crash that no one wanted to be in banking, let alone technologists who wanted to go to Google and Facebook and have a high base salary. They didn't care about the bonus and wanted to be wearing jeans and drink beer. And so how did we think through innovation strategy at Goldman? So that for me was a blessing because it was really the first time that I really got to work with technologists. Simultaneously, what was happening to me is because I was a finance major at Emory and I focused on finance and organizational design at Columbia, a lot of my network are in finance. And these are individuals who in their career are now kind of moving up in their career. So what started as Carrie was finance, now HR, I have now turned into that HR guru in my network. Mm. And what started happening is my network started reaching out to me the minute I went to Goldman of, hey, here's my CV. Can you help me get a job? To, hey, I'm now in private equity. I'm in venture and we have a change in control of a leadership team and there's some toxicity. Mm. Can can we take some time to talk about it? I could use your help. Mm. And the same thing was happening among my venture capital network where they were advising early stage companies who were growing from five employees to 100 employees to 1,000 employees. And at that moment, that was the most critical thing where my VC network and my entrepreneurial network needed help. So how do you actually 
remove that toxic energy from leadership because that's so hard, especially if they're the founders, right? There's going to be a lot of resistance. So what are some of the tactics that you've learned or how would you advise those companies? Yeah, so like I think about, so when I was at Goldman, one of the roles that I was in is Goldman acquired a real estate private equity firm in Dallas, Texas, Archon Group. And this company was started by five white cowboys. <laughs> and it was, there was a strategic reason that we ended up acquiring, and it was 1,000 employees globally. And guess who got to go to Dallas for two years to help lead that integration into yeah. Goldman Sachs? And like anything, like you really have to kind of take a step back and really understand the constituent. Who are these individuals? What are their drivers? What are their motivators? Mm. And really, it's the simplifying. Keep it simple, stupid. Mm. But it really is. Every company has a different culture. Every single person on your team has a different want and need. So taking a step back to first understand, hey, why, why are these people here? What gets them out of bed in the morning? Mm. And then from there, obviously, there's going to be strategic priorities for the business, whether it's cost-cutting or moving you know, populations to a center of excellence, whatever it is. But like for me, it's always been taking a step back, getting to know those constituents. So when I went to Dallas before kind of, you know, I was Goldman Sachs marching there to integrate them at Goldman, you know, and I also had to push back to New York to say, hey, we, we can't overnight <laughs> move into the Goldman Sachs policies and procedures. Yeah. That's not going to work. And so being that like middle person, knowing, hey, this is who you're dealing with, mm. seeing what is aligning, you know, one of the organizations, seeing what's aligning the others and at the right time and energy, allowing them to have buy-in, mm. right? Everyone wants their voice to be heard. So uh, allowing their voices to be heard. And then from there, kind of like any negotiation, seeing what are like the deal breakers and understanding from a time and energy what is like feasible. Mm. So that's really kind of like the background. And after having that experience at Goldman, it gave yeah. me perspective to help kind of these private equity also going through the same thing. And those are the number one challenges that integrations are. How do you align the cultures? Yeah. You know, the two different sets of people with two different set for set of incentives and then also two different systems for operating. Mm. We're all used to having our tools and decorum and day to day, but like when you go through those things, you're shaking yeah. it up. So how can we do it in a seamless way? Do you have an example of a really tough negotiation that you had to go through and maybe bring it to uh, like the details of what are some of the incentives or what was at stake and how did you actually get someone to buy in to, to get the negotiation in, in your favor? Sure. I mean, look, this is the, like the, the, the million dollar question, <laughs> right? I always laugh because I think of there was a business school case with Suzanne Summers, the BATNA, the best alternative next best mm -hmm. offer. And it's about her, I think, in Thighmaster and her negotiation. And you always need to have that best alternative next best offer, knowing that you're probably not going to both get mm -hmm. what you want. Um, and I think for me, it's always been you have to understand who you're negotiating with, right? Because I know what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, time is our most valuable asset. Even today, as I'm negotiating among myself um, on the projects that I'm involved with, I know that, like, I'm going against the clock. Mm. You know, so you're, I'm negotiating opportunity cost on what am I going to have to take away. And so my kind of, like, takeaways for anything is – First step is you always have to know 
what is on the other side of the table? What drives them? What are the incentives? How do you discover what drives them? You know, let's say you are, you don't have all the time in the world, right? And oftentimes to really get to know someone deeply, like what are their motivations? You need time. So are there any questions or ways in which you accelerate that process? I mean, I'm at the point now in my life that I'm an, I kind of run an open source world. Mm -hmm. Obviously you can't put everything out on the table. There's some aspect of holding back, but I think those, the reason that I've been able to achieve success in multiple avenues is because when I come to the table, I, from the get-go, say what my expectations are and Mm -hmm. say what I'm looking for. And so the way that I'm able to do it now, and you, again, you have to know your audience, doesn't work in every case. It's coming to the table early on to say, this is what I need from the get-go and asking on the reverse, like, what are your deal breakers? I even say it, I've introduced three marriages. I ask the same questions. What are the deal breakers? Like, I want to know from the beginning, like, what is going to, like, make everything absolute where it doesn't matter? Mm. So what are the deal breakers? You know, what are you looking to achieve? And if you can get that out in the open first, Mm. you know, ideally, if you have time, I love back channeling. Mm. So if you're negotiating with somebody, you're, you know, we're all connected. You know, we're one degrees. Um, I have realized that in life that, you know, like we really are one or two degrees from everyone. Mm. And so when I have the time to really reach out to those that know the person who's on the other side of the table to get Mm -hmm. some data points from prior experiences and to understand their negotiation tactic, that's an obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, And then others that have worked with those individuals before, Mm -hmm. I sometimes even ask uh, if I don't know and it's not apparent, I'll ask, hey, you know, Give me an example of some of your projects or the people that you've worked with. And then one of my favorite tactics is when I talk to that person, I then say, you know, since you know them, what other projects do you know that they've worked on? Because a lot of time, even on reference checking, et cetera, a great tactic is anytime you reference check, they're going to give the names of the references that, you know, hopefully have flattering things yeah. to say about them. Yeah. And then when you have that meeting, get two or three other names because mm. you want to really peel down the mm. layer to really make sure you understand, again, who's on the other side of mm. the table. So my tactic as a person now is being open, transparent. You know, you don't want to let everything out. I don't want them to know every, like, negotiation tactic I have and what I'm, but I'm, I'm really getting it on the table or what are the deal breakers at this point. Mm. There's a project recently that asked me to advise, and for me, it's really, like, right now about timing. Like, and my overcommitment on some of the projects that I'm very passionate, I'm excited about. But I know if I take on another project, something else is gonna get shortchanged. And so kind of for me, realizing that from the get-go, it's a project that I really wanna be involved in, interested, but I know I don't have the time right now. So kind of I've gone back and I've said, this is the exact time I can commit to this. So I feel like I've been very transparent, I've been very open, And now the negotiation has gone from there. Mm. So I'd say, you know, being open on what your expectations are and really asking for it. And then making each other accountable. Things Mm. shift and change, by the way. Negotiations, even though some of them are really quick, some of them can take forever. You know, there's negotiations that I'm still in six months later. And it's because, you know, it's not blowing up right now. It's not urgent. You know, this is a project that has some time. So things evolve and change. So it's okay 
to change your mind or change the terms as you go along, that's life mm. and that's time. Yeah. But as long as you're like open and you're like clear and that you're both on the same page on what you're both looking to get mm. from that partnership, yeah. like that's a great starting point. Yeah. Any red flags? Ah, uh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's like l subtle red flags that like are just caution for me. Mm. As I'm meeting now, I'm an early stage investor. You know, for us, when over 10 invest, we're looking for companies whose products and service ideally are already on the market. They might not be at product market fit yet. However, they're starting to iterate. They're starting to show sales and some metrics that would show that they're growing in the right way. Occasionally, we'll invest earlier when we really think that we can be helpful and hands-on uh, to those companies. One of my like things that I look for is just when I'm speaking to the entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. what's the words that they use to talk about their team and their project? Are they using the word I or are they saying we? Mm -hmm. How are they talking about their team? And I'm listening. <laughs> I'm listening in my subtle way. I versus we is very important. And look, it's not just because you say I. It's not going to knock you out, but those are things that I'm listening for. So that's an obvious. Self-awareness is really important. We all have our strengths and our areas for development, mm -hmm. you know? And it's so interesting because some of the tools that we've been looking at as a fund are, what are those like, at the end of the day, we all have our different styles for working. We all have our superpowers. And how can we like maximize, you know, our time and energy based on our superpowers and align ourselves with complementary backgrounds? And then also, like, with our team, how can we, you know, get into a rhythm that our working styles are in sync, knowing that we have different styles? So I spend a lot of time, like, thinking through, like, the self-awareness of somebody's actual superpowers. You know, again, it's okay if there's areas for development. We all have them. And what is the authenticity of those founders to recognize what they are and what they're doing to align themselves around others who can complement them? Yeah. So those are kind of like, you know, not necessarily like red flags, but those are like probably the most important things that I'm doing yeah. as I'm looking at an opportunity. Mm. And... Um how would you describe your working style? <laughs> such a great question. I feel like that's such a great question for my business partner. And I have to say, we have two very different working styles, which can be a blessing and can be a curse. Because mm. early on, kind of like working through those working styles. So for me, I keep everything in my, my head. Mm. And I've been fortunate that even though I have multi, I've, I'm multifaceted, I'm involved in so many different projects, I know, and I've always, and I don't know if it's because of management consulting and working at Goldman, like the sense of prioritization has just been embedded in me. So I even I, I know at any given moment what is critical. And look, you don't want to ever be in an environment where things are blowing up. But I'm somebody where I know where I need to kind of schedule my time and energy mm. based on I have limited partners, I have investors, that's a priority if they reach out to me. Um, our portfolio companies are a priority to me. And so I've been good at keeping it in my mind. So that's a superpower. On the flip side is those that are working with me <laughs> have to kind of like understand how can I allow them to also understand everything that's on my plate. And so today, back to that open source, I have an open calendar. Mm. So anyone that is working with me has access to my calendar 
and by the way, is invited to any of my meetings, and I say, look, 90% of my meetings are not confidential where anyone can come on. And I say that to my network now as I especially want the other bad bitches, especially in my network, that when they say, hey, I want to get involved in what you're doing, I can easily say, hey, by the way, here are all the projects. Here's my calendar. So my working style is collaborative, open. Um, I keep a lot in, in my head. I need to align myself with really organized individuals who can kind of keep me organized to be able to manage the multiple projects that I have. Um, I have an incredible team for Overton, and now with all the other miscellaneous projects, I have somebody else who's managing those to make sure that, you know, nothing is slipping through the cracks. Mm -hmm. So I'd say collaborative, open, you know, um, organized chaos, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I have to align myself with yeah. really organized people who can understand that and, and the flow that goes with that as Definitely. well. So you are working on multiple projects. You're an investor, you're a founder, you're a community builder. And inevitably that means that you're dealing with a lot of people, multiple partners. How do you do it all? And also, how do you figure out like how to slot people in, for lack of a better term? It's Because I'm sure there's a lot of people who see what you're doing and say, I want to be a part of that. And I know that feeling when it's like overwhelm. It's like, okay, well, how do I make sure everyone feels empowered? Yeah, this is like the number one question that I'm still dealing with right now. And I will say I put it out. The way that like opportunities have come to me, there's a power of manifesting. Mm -hmm. manifesting is like so powerful yeah. um, and it happens and I say and I put it out to any technologist that's listening to this if you have a tool that can aggregate text whatsapp telegram signal <laughs> instagram twitter linkedin email like I will invest and I will be your biggest fan um, because we're at the point where just based on I think when I was born and the demographics who are around me 10% of my communications are coming on all these channels and then all the groups that are being managed within all these channels. So my system that works right now and I'm trying to you know, perfect it is I have an assistant in the Philippines whose role is to organize, you know, I'd say the contacts. Anytime I go out, I speak at a conference, there's 20 more. Mm -hmm. And my method is connecting with people on LinkedIn first because I'm somebody, because I do remember, and look, as I get older, I hope that that gift stays with me, but I also recognize I need better systems outside of my head. I'm somebody where I do remember every interaction. And if I then remembered a place, I'm a connector ultimately, I'm a super node, and that's how I kind of define where I've gotten to at this point. Nothing gives me more gratitude than connecting to bad bitch women in my network Nothing, nothing, there's no incentive. It's just the, the thought of doing it. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time. And so managing my contacts. So my methodology is connecting on LinkedIn mm -hmm. because there, A, there's a picture there. And because I can sort based on when I met them, something will trigger. Cause I'll be at another meeting two weeks later and somebody will say, hey, I'm looking for X, Y, Z. Or do you know anyone that does, you know, ABC? And I'll immediately remember that I, I met Lisa. You know, I might not remember Lisa's name at this point because there's so much going on, but I'll remember when I met her. And then I'll remember what she looks like. Mm -hmm. And I can quickly go to LinkedIn. And what I always do is I have a process for connecting on LinkedIn. And then my assistant in the Philippines will instantly um, message on LinkedIn 
my email and my phone number. So if that person who met me needs to get a hold of me in a, you know, a quick way, they know where to find me. And then if it was just a serendipitous meeting for some reconnection in the future, I'll remember because when I meet that person who's on the other side of the equation, and that has been my system, mm-hmm. and it happens every day yeah. that I'm going to LinkedIn and I'm connecting people because that's my methodology. Today that works until somebody <laughs> presents, whether it's the QR code. Some people take a picture to remember. I just haven't found it. So yeah. LinkedIn for me is like the way that I manage it and then have this woman in the Philippines who can help me today. And Got it. I'm I'm constantly ser- searching yeah, for it. Yeah, I think we all are. Because that's super connectors. That's what yeah. it is. And if we have these and I see it, it's just gotten to the point in my network where I'm a node and I love to like talk about nodes because I'm doing a lot of tokenomics and thinking through not only incentives of organizations, but incentives and systems, Mm -hmm. which in Web3 and DeFi is so important. And if I think about the people nodes, you know, the value and the utility of individuals like us who have these incredible individuals in our network who are experts, they're nodes. So I see it as I'm a super node, you're a super node. I have all these super nodes who are experts and if we're connecting all them and they share similar values to us, their North Star is similar. Like a lot of where we can bring value is just connecting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I also want to touch upon time. You know, we briefly, t- you briefly mentioned that and how to allocate your time across all the different projects, all the different people, everyone who's asking for your attention. How do you think through that when you wake up in the morning? Yeah. You have to be deliberate. And this was feedback that one of my good friends shared with me recently. And I'm fortunate. I have a coach. I highly recommend everyone have a coach, even if you don't pay for a coach. I coach so many people who are, that I didn't even realize I was coaching. I have a coach who keeps me, like, deliberate. Um, and so for me, it's, you know, having a business partner for over 10 who is extremely organized, who every day we have a catch-up that kind of shares what our priorities for our fund are. So I know that's my number one priority. I have investors and fiduciary responsibility for my fund. So that's number one is having a business partner who allows me to be deliberate. And then with all the other projects that I'm involved with, carving out times. I'm organized that I have a day every week that each one of those projects is a priority. Mm -hmm. And I know what that day of the week is. And then also blocking time on my calendar because I know with all the new meetings, Mm -hmm. all the new potential investment meetings and all the other miscellaneous stuff, if I don't have blocks of time to actually get busy work done, Mm. I'll be up all night. And I went down that rabbit hole like last year in the middle of COVID and we had to prioritize. Self-care is so important. So for me, the word is being deliberate, having a coach, and then having a business partner that like is aligned on what you're looking to achieve. But I'd say deliberate is that word. That's my yeah. mantra on every day waking up and being deliberate with mm. what I'm committing to. Yeah. And then saying no. And it's hard. It's so hard when we're givers. Yeah. It's so hard. <laughs> it's the hardest. And it's but on the flip side is it's also what I realize is, you know, it's embarrassing when I don't respond. And you have to be able to be organized. And we have a capacity, time capacity. And and now the pace of everything and the way that we communicate, whether it's virtual or, or in person, the speed of the network is just rapidly increasing. Yeah. So it's not humanly possible to be able to be there for everyone. So yeah. 
and you know being and hoping that people understand why you're saying no and being okay yeah. with that that you well, can't be there that's all the, the time you said time capacity but there's also like energetic capacity right physically just not having the energy and sometimes I just hit that mental place where I just I can't respond because I just need time for myself I feel bombarded I feel like I can't even hear myself think and I can't be there for other people in the best way because I need to take care of myself first yeah. and self-care is the most important thing and I will say after management consulting in Goldman I was a you know, I'm the same, I was the same person there. Mm -hmm. However, when I walked in the door, it was like I was a machine. Yeah. You know, it was it was business and then there was personal on the side. My worlds now have just completely intersected. You know, my friends are investors of mine. I'm doing business with friends. It's like, we're all kind of in this. And so back to the authentic self, for me being able to actually communicate back to say, right now I am at capacity as a friend. I hope you understand. And, you know, those that you are kind of partnering with mm -hmm. understand it and therefore they're motivated to help you yeah. <laughs> figure out how to get into alignment. Yeah. So I now kind of, and it took me many years, I'm a little older than you, it took me many years to finally like have that moment of mm -hmm. show up with your authentic self, know what your limitations are. You might not know them, but you'll figure them out by pushing yourself to them, you know, surround yourself with incredible people who will allow you to stay deliberate to whatever it is you're looking for. And sometimes, like even for me until right now, I wasn't even sure what I was looking for. Like my drive is I'm passionate about philanthropy and the boards I sit on. That's why I get out of bed in the morning. I love working with really smart people. Um, I'm curious about the future. And so I always like being front and center of knowing what's happening. So how do I like knowing that's my drivers <laughs> for life? You know, how do I surround myself with great people to look at great companies for the future to then give back to the philanthropies I care about. Mm. And that's like, for me, trying to be deliberate on reminding myself, and by the way, you know, to bring into the bad bitch conversation, I'm at the point that I am single, and the number one priority is I'd like to find my future partner. So also, putting that in the equation yeah. so people around me know, hey, my self-care for that priority, my personal priority right at this moment is my number one priority. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna be 100% for work or the return of my fund. However, it's when I communicate it out loud, what I've realized, my accountability right now is communicating things out loud. There's a company that we actually just committed to at Overton, um, it's called Groove. And Groove allows, um, it's targeted at solopreneurs, um, and what it is, is it allows you to schedule in advance or at that moment where quickly it connects you with three or four other individuals where you go around in 30 seconds and say, what for the next 50 minutes are you looking to achieve? And you all go around, you say like, I'm looking to do, you know, put my list together of all my contacts. Yeah. And then 15 minutes later, you all get on the groove and you say if you did it. What I realized for me is when I communicate out loud to my close network, I'm then really making myself accountable. Mm. So that's actually also back to yeah. being deliberate, communicating out loud to those that you trust and that are watching you, it allows you to really make yourself accountable yeah. to be organized. I and think that of that has been my trick. Yeah, as external forcing functions. That's like what I always do. It's like whenever I set a big goal for myself, I you know, it's scary when you set that big goal and then you just say it out loud and suddenly people know about it. You're like, okay, I got to do it now. 
you know, it's it's that external accountability. And that and that happened and kind of for the health tech company that has been in stealth mode. I went to Davos with uh, my co-founder and he said, we're announcing it here. Yeah. And it was like the minute I announced it. You're like, it's, it's now, a thing now. It's a thing now. <laughs> and yeah. here we are. Yeah. So, and that was kind of our moment. So it was that moment I knew, okay, now I'm yeah. responsible. <laughs> Got to get it done. <laughs> so manifesting your dream partner, do you have any, I'm sure you have, you know, different thoughts and like, what does that person uh, how are they, you know, what's what's the list or attributes that you're looking for? Such a great question. <laughs> um, look, I'm a passionate individual. Um, I'm fortunate that I wake up with a smile on my face and I recognize not everyone, you know, might. So I'd say somebody who's positive in spirit um, doesn't mean that they might not have gone through the trials and tribulation of life, but somebody who's like baseline is positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who's passionate about something you know, there's a reason they get out of bed in the morning um, that drives them. Um, you know, I'm Jewish and very spiritual, so I think that it probably makes sense for the person to share the same religion just because it's such a big part of my life. But at the end of the day, you know, somebody where you have a chemistry with and there's not a, diff- a particular look, I think it's back to an energy, mm-hmm. you know, if you vibe or not, and you can, you don't have to have all the same interests, but you want to respect those interests and maybe you're interested in knowing the other person's interest. Yeah. But that's kind of, you know, I think shouldn't be so difficult. <laughs> However, yeah. I need to make time for it. And yeah. Like I said, I love setting people up. So now even in business, this like overlap where I finish meetings and if I sense that somebody is single, I finish the meeting. Hey, by the way, are you single? And what are you looking for? Mm. Because now on the, like the matching of everything, um, you know, we really have an opportunity to elevate. Is it business? Is it personal? Yeah. It all circles at this point. Yeah. So I do. And, and in the past, like I said, when I was at Goldman or management consulting, I would have never thought about like opening my eyes to ask a business partner, yeah. are you single and are yeah. you open to being set up? Now I pretty much finish every meeting. Hey, yeah. are you are you single and what are you looking for? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, am always happy because you never know who you're gonna meet the next day that is exactly like what that person is looking to meet in business or personal. So as an ambitious bad bitch, how important do you think it is to you that he also be ambitious? You know, you mentioned passion, but you know. Can they be passionate about everything? Or do you see someone who's in the same industry or different? Do they need to be as ambitious as you are? Uh, I, it's interesting because I've actually, like, the last few weeks I've thought about it. No, they definitely don't. Um, I do want a family, et cetera. And I think at that point I'm able to, like, prioritize the multiple things on my plate. I'm assuming I'll be able to manage that as well. Um, so I'm open. They don't have to have that same drive mm-hmm. and ambition. However, again, I'd say like some other like higher calling that gets yeah. them out of bed in the morning that yeah. is beyond themselves. I think yeah. is like the the fundamental point for me. Yeah. What about? I know this happens all the time. It's definitely happened to me. Men who are intimidated by you you know, for, for being the bad bitch that you are, for accomplishing so much, have you encountered that and how have you dealt with it? 
Like occasionally yeah. I've had, like, you know, a couple gentlemen yeah. tell me it. And yeah. I think once they actually then have a conversation with me, mm-hmm. I think I'm pretty <laughs> disarming. <laughs> once you like, you know, on yeah. the surface maybe. Yeah. But the minute I think you actually have a real conversation, yeah. you see that I let my guard down pretty quickly yeah. and I'm pretty approachable. So yeah. once they get, uh, you know, over maybe what they've heard or seen yeah. um, on the surface, um, I think they then realize how approachable I am. And I have to say, I mean, kudos. I have a funny story where um, one of my portfolio companies, actually the founder reached out to me on a dating app. <laughs> and I guess he saw in the dating app. You Is there know, no conflict up. of interest well, there? Well, <laughs> at first I just say I was a little annoyed. I yeah. was like, oh, come on. All right. However... Yeah. It's one of my favorite companies. <laughs> and like, I'm really close to him today. We're yeah. good friends. And kudos to him for going at it. Like, yeah. he really, he yeah. made, and at first, I, you know, it was like, oh, I was, I was a little annoyed, wasn't going to give the time. But back to, you know, like, anything works. You know, mm-hmm. you never know. Mm-hmm. So whether it's in business or in person, and then also you can't make assumptions. Yeah. You know, assumptions makes an ass out of you and me. Always, like, I'm, I'm, I try to give the benefit of the doubt, you know, back to when you say like, what are the red flags? Recognizing somebody might, you know, position their conversation of I, 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 and forget to acknowledge their team. You know what? A little coaching. They maybe haven't had the the right mentors or, you know, you don't want to change somebody. Mm -hmm. So back to, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt in any situation is also yeah. like an approach that I try to do. You can't give that much time and that yeah. many benefits or we'd be exhausted trying to give opportunities to others. Um, but also like, you know, I think like trying to drill in early on to like what is the core, yeah. you know, what is that driver that motivates is really important, whether it's personal or in business as well. Awesome. So where is Carrie Lee Miller in one year from now? Let's manifest <laughs> that, project that forward. Give us a, a paint a picture of that. Uh, probably in the metaverse, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, I joke, my favorite like social conversation is, are we in the metaverse right now? Because I am consulting and advising so many metaverse projects. And what's fascinating, and I'm, I'm saying it jokingly, but I'm, I'm serious in the sense that, and in a year, I don't think we'll fully be in the metaverse. Um, hopefully, I will not be as nomadic. I'd say, like, I love splitting my time between Miami, New York, and a little bit of Atlanta. However, I do realize that it suits me to be in the same place, and I've had flexibility over the last couple years. So hopefully in one city where I can say this is my home and not say Miami, New York, and Atlanta, um, I still hope to be like front and center at the metaverse. I really, I was a first mover. I had my annual meeting for my investors mm-hmm. on a metaverse two years ago, and it's something that I'm passionate about because we're connecting the world in ways that we never did because now individuals who couldn't communicate before have an opportunity to feel like they're next to each other Mm -hmm. and so I really see the power of bringing the world together in this way so I see myself like really leaning in further to web 3 I'm excited about it you know hopefully I will be married and you know uh, have that life partner um but I have a feeling I'll still have my smile on my face. I hope that doesn't go away and feel like that's a gift that I have. I also, something for everyone, the power of the smile, that's something that like you see in everything that you do, whether it's 
the minute in New York, you know, walking my dog on the street, and she has a smile, Nikki. She has a smile, and we do. We individually, like, and you don't always see it. I really believe that I'm a spiritual person, and I think there will be a look back on those, like, interactions that you never realize the, the, the role that you played and that smile that you gave to somebody who – you know, was having a horrible day and you changed their trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I've had taxi cab drivers tell me that where, and I also, I have this thing when I get in a taxi, we're all, when I'm in a rush and, you know, in a fast, even if I'm kind of telling them to go one way and I'm being more aggressive, yeah. I never, I want to make sure that I haven't changed the momentum for them. So I want to make sure before I even get out of the taxi to make sure that I've left that taxi elevated and kind of living in that. So for me, I hope in a year's time that I'll still like have that smile because that's a gift. And, you know, I hope others see when they smile at others that you never know what it's giving to the other person as well. Love it. And final question for you. What does it mean to you to be a bad bitch? (laughs) I mean, I have to say when you, when I first heard the name and I can say this to Lisa at first, I'm like the word bitch. What do I think about this word bitch? And I always go back to my dog, Nikki, Nikki, the goddess of victory, Nike, right? I was a runner. And for me, I always have a positive affiliation of the word bitch because it's a female dog. And after getting to know you and the power of the bad bitch empire, you know, it's women who are like-minded, who really know what their North Star is and are looking to partner with other bad bitches that can complement that one plus one. It's not three, it's infinity. So when I think of bad bitch, I, I think about that. And I think about Nikki, who like is wired in the way that we are. <laughs> like, how can she, every time she meets a new dog friend or a human friend, she walks up to them with grace to say, hello, I'm Nikki Miller. Nice to meet you. Let's be friends. And like really trying. And even like the ones who are scared of dogs, she knows. And she knows how to, and the ones that like, maybe they're bigger or smaller and all of us bad bitches is trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the other bad bitch and then elevating each other. So really proud of what you created and thanks for having me on your podcast. Thank you so much, Carrie. And thank you for all of your wisdom and your mentorship and advice. I think you are doing so much just giving back to the bad bitches in your network. And I think that really shows. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot, tag me at Lisa Carmen Wang, and make sure you check out thebadbitchempire.com for events, courses, crypto, and other cool shit. Thanks for tuning in to The Bad Bitch Empire.